Good morning. I want you to get your Bibles open this morning to Luke chapter 22. Thanks for joining us this morning. You know, it's been 16 weeks since we have been able to gather together as a church in person. By God's grace, that's changing next week. We're going to continue to host the online gathering if you're not ready to come back to church. But I have heard from so many of you that cannot wait to get back in the same place with others who believe like you, who others can, uh, who can stir your faith. And I want you to know that your pastors and your elders and your staff have been thinking about you. We see you in our mind's eye and we cannot wait to see you in person at our brand new worship center here at Gospel City on the Granger campus next week. And I don't want to miss an opportunity here. Um, you have been able to experience what you've experienced over these last 16 weeks uh, by way of an online gathering because of a small army of volunteers that have spent themselves for you. Uh, it may look easy from where you are on that side of the screen, but I am looking at a cameraman and audio technicians and photographers and geniuses that have, uh, have spent themselves in a way that's just really remarkable. And so we have been able to be served gathering together uh, in worship from wherever you are uh, because of a great team. And I just want to say thank you so much to the team that's allowed us to do this. And a lot of this is because you've been faithful in your giving because technology is expensive. And uh, we're excited about what God has for us in the days ahead. I want to give you the big idea of the message here this morning, and it so relates to everything that I just said. Here is the big idea. Say it in one sentence, Trent. Here it is. If your faith has ever faltered, you can be sure that Jesus is still faithful to you. If your faith has ever faltered, remember Jesus is still faithful to you. We're going to learn that from a biography lesson from probably your favorite disciple. My favorite disciple for sure. For sure the most relatable disciple because we often see him faltering and failing and sticking his foot in his mouth. And by now you know that we're talking about the disciple Peter. And let's just jump into it here. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus is having a conversation with Simon. His, his pre-Christian name was Simon. It's interesting, Jesus often calls him by different names. He called him Simon, and then he changed his name, and he called him Peter. At one point, he called him Satan. That tells you, you know, how great a disciple he was. And so, he begins the conversation this way in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, announcement, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will crow this day until you the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus predicts his failure, and yet we're gonna learn Jesus prevents 
the faltering and failing, finally, of his faith. And I don't know about you, I I am grateful for the stories of Peter's faltering faith. And I've wondered over in this this, this 16-week season in my life, and I've wondered about you, I've wondered about me, how is your faith doing? I don't know about you, I think it's impossible for those of us that call ourselves disciples of, of Jesus to be the same in light of the season that we've been facing. I I just believe that either this season has been a season of strengthening your faith or it's been a season of faltering faith. And if you would say, yeah, probably the honest evaluation in this season, my faith has been faltering. I don't know how to process things like global pandemics and I don't know how to process the injustices that I've seen and I don't know how to process the the loss of a job and I don't know what the future's like and why can't we meet as a church and and why do they make me wear a mask and I don't know And, and listen if your faith has ever faltered I believe that this story is for you if you've ever been the disciple that has over promised and under delivered remember Jesus is faithful to you. If you've ever been the disciple who's made commitments that you couldn't keep, if you've been the disciple that's been overconfident and self-reliant and you've been humbled by how weak your faith really is in the face of temptation, you need to remember Jesus is faithful to you. You know who you are. Um, If you've ever sung a song and lifted high the name of Jesus in public worship on Sunday and found yourself living like the devil on Monday, remember Jesus is faithful to you. If you've ever identified with Christ in public and then you've denied Him in private, Jesus is still faithful to you. If you've ever spoken truth with your lips but then denied Him with the example of your life, remember Jesus is faithful to you. If you've ever made promises to God never to commit a particular sin ever again, and then 24 hours later find yourself confessing and repenting of said sin, remember, Jesus is faithful to you. This message is for backslidden, faith-faltering disciples who are wondering right now, is my failure final? Am I still loved? Is there still grace for somebody like me? If you're ever wondering, is there even a place at church for me? I want you to to learn from from the example of Peter that Jesus is faithful to the faltering faith of disciples like you and me. Now, this message is not just for disciples whose faith is faltering. This is also for some of you who are not yet disciples. And the reason you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, maybe you've been contemplating that, you've read your Bible, maybe you're counting the cost, maybe you're evaluating the strength of your own faith, and yet you are yet to make a commitment to Jesus because you're afraid that your faith will falter. And you don't want to be like those hypocrites that you know that say they're faithful and you just know they're not by the example of their life. It's like, you don't want to be a hypocrite like all those other people. Listen, you're going to love the story of, of, of Peter because even as a disciple, he was in process. His faith wasn't fully formed and yet 
He made a profession of faith to follow Jesus. Now, please understand, as we get into this, there's two kinds of faith. There is a faith that saves, and there is a faith that does not save. Ephesians chapter 2 simply tells us, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift so that no one can boast. And so realize, there is a faith that saves. We are saved exclusively through faith by grace. And so it is faith that saved. It's not your performance. It's not your religious activity. It's not your, your, your goodness. It's not trying harder, doing better, being nicer. None of those things will save you. Only faith in the finished work of Jesus will save. But there's, there's a lot of people that make professions of faith that are not truly, genuinely converted to Christ. Now, now listen, everyone is a person of faith. Every person on the planet is a person of faith. The truth is you either have faith in yourself, you believe in yourself, I'm strong enough, I'm good enough, I'm intelligent enough, I don't need that religion, I don't need Jesus. Or, for disciples of Jesus, you've discovered, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm putting my faith in Jesus because Jesus is good enough. And yet, there are people that have made professions of faith that simply are not genuine believers. Not every profession of faith produces genuine salvation. When someone makes a first-time profession of faith, we like to say here at church, they were hopefully converted. I like that. Because it's really proven over the course of their life whether or not their faith was genuine. Faith is always evidenced by a lifetime of repentance. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Now, too many people that I've known who call themselves Christians live with a false assurance of salvation. Listen, if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. So is there evidence of repentance and genuine heart hunger for the things of God? If not, then don't, don't say that you're a disciple of Jesus. Those who have genuine faith, not a perfect faith, but a genuine faith, are going to have evidence of repentance in their life. And we see this in the life of Peter as well. Now, if you're like me, increasingly in our culture, you have seen... Um, People who at one time claimed to be Christians, who are now coming out in a sense, claiming they are no longer Christians. I have seen former pastors come out and say, I no longer would consider myself a Christian. Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, Rhett and Link, a popular you know, social media group that is like, yeah, we were Christians bad and we don't really consider ourselves Christians anymore. I saw a friend today that was in my youth group when I was growing up and he was in ministry. He was a pastor for a while and, and because of a tragedy in the life of his child, even in recent days, he's come out and said, I'm, I no longer consider myself a Christian. Now, does that rock you? It really shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us because we see over and over in the pages of Scripture 
people that did the same thing, people that followed Jesus for a while, and when it got hard and they didn't like something Jesus was talking about, they left. And even people in ministry throughout uh, the scriptures did the same thing. So, so how do we process that biblically and doctrinally? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, there's a verse there that helps us. John, who was a disciple of Jesus, who saw people leaving, simply said this. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, that, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So, doctrinally, biblically, deconversion is an impossibility. Someone who fully and finally walks away from their faith was never genuinely converted to begin with. Conversion is an irreversible, irrevocable decree by God that changes our legal status before God. And then when our legal status before God has been changed, it produces a heart change and a life change that is undeniable. So it's impossible for those who have been genuinely converted to fully and finally walk away from faith. However, all of us disciples have a faltering faith. And like Peter, at times we deny him either with our words or with our life. And if you've ever done that, this message is for you. This is what we're going to see. Uh, we're going to see that faltering faith doesn't have to be fatal. So the genuineness of your faith is proven by what you do after your faith falters. Do you repent? Do you change? Do you renew your faith in Jesus? Do you believe the gospel has the power to save you from your faltering faith? What do we do as Christians when we sin? We repent and believe the gospel. Repenting and believing the gospel is not just what we do in our first faith moments. It's what we do throughout the course of our lifetime following Jesus. So we're going to see here in the life of Peter just two essential buckets that we'll hang some thoughts on. Uh, first of all, we're going to see the signs of a faltering faith. We're going to see those in the life of Peter. And we're also going to see the rescue of a faltering faith. So there's four signs here of a faltering faith. The first of them is this. It's an unawareness of spiritual attack. Now, Peter at this point has already made a profession of faith. Earlier, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter gives his profession of faith. He says, I believe you are the Christ, the prophesied Messiah from all of the Old Testaments revealed in bodily form. You are the Messiah. And Jesus looked at him and said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but that is from God. God has given you the faith to believe I am who I say I am. So hopefully you've had a moment like that where you have embraced Jesus as your Messiah, as your Savior. The conversation continues with Peter when Jesus first calls Peter. He calls him from fishing. Do you like to fish? You would like Peter. He calls him from fishing to be a fisher of men. And Peter 
follows Jesus. That's the definition of a disciple, not just somebody who makes a profession of faith, but actually follows up on the profession with his life. Um, Later on, you remember uh, there was the scene in the boat where uh, Jesus was walking on the water toward the boat, and Peter says, that's Jesus, and Jesus says, come on and, and come. And Peter, in faith, begins to walk on water, but then he saw the wind and the waves, and he began to sink, and Jesus had to save him. And so that is such a picture of the Christian life. I mean, there's days when our faith is strong. There's days when our faith is weak and we're ashamed and embarrassed of ourselves. But, but realize this. I am not saved based on the strength of my faith. I am saved based on the object of my faith. And I need to understand that as a follower of Christ, I am under spiritual attack. Notice here, it says that uh, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. Who is this character Satan? Understand that Satan is not the evil twin of Jesus. I mean, there's all kinds of weird ideas about Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. He declared war on God. God won the war, kicked him out of heaven. He put him on the face of the earth. And he's doing today the same thing that he was doing in heaven on the day that he was kicked out of earth. He's kicked out of heaven. He He is leading a rebellion against God, and he is trying to convince you to come with him. Satan hates everything about God. If he could destroy God, he would, but he cannot. So do you know what he does? He tries to destroy everything that reflects God. And those of us who have made a profession of faith to follow Jesus now have the crosshairs of Satan on us in the same way that he said, that Jesus said, um, Satan has demanded to sift Peter. Satan has demanded to sift every follower of Jesus. It's interesting here. um, Jesus says um, to Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you. Now, the word you there is plural. In the Greek, it means y'all. Okay, so Satan has demanded of God to sift you all. You all disciples, all disciples of Jesus are in the crosshairs of Satan. Satan demands to sift every disciple. Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates Jesus' followers. And Satan hates Gospel City Church. Do you know why? Because Gospel City Church has made a commitment to make the very thing Satan hates. The disciples of Jesus. And in this moment, in this 16 weeks, I believe we're in a season of sifting. The word there, sift, is an interesting word. We don't use that much anymore because we're not farmers, most of us. Uh, Back in Bible times, if you wanted to make some bread, you didn't just go down to Martin's and buy a loaf of bread. You had to grow a crop. You had to harvest the grain. You put the grain in the sifter, an instrument where it was shaken. The word sift actually means to violently, rapidly shake. These 16 weeks have been a season where Satan has been violently, rapidly shaking disciples of Jesus. And the question is, 
what's left after the shaking. You see, the sifter was designed to separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff would fall through the cracks, it would blow away in the wind, and what would remain would be what was useful, what is true. And so I would ask you in this season, do you feel like you've been rattled? Feel like you've been shaken? Understand, that is simply what God has used to reveal what is true, true disciples of Jesus. You say, now wait a minute, is it, is it God doing this or is it Satan doing this? The answer is yes. Satan is God's Satan. Satan, according to Revelation chapter 12, periodically appears before the throne of God and demands or he doesn't even really ask. He just demands to sift the disciples. And at times, God says, you, you have permission to go do that. Satan's on a leash. And so at times, when we're facing trials and heartache and sickness and pain and job loss and virus, understand it is God that is using the tool of Satan to reveal what is actually useful to him true disciples. Satan wants to destroy our faith, and yet Jesus has prayed for us that our faith may not fail. And in this season, please understand, the attack that is coming upon the church is going to sift who the true disciples really are. We will either exercise faith in the one who unites us, or we will be divided by the one who hates us. Understand that Satan is attacking and seeking to divide and destroy the faith of the genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Right now, in this moment, if you profess faith in Christ, you are under spiritual attack. You are in far more danger than you actually realize. There is a powerful, cosmic ruler of this world with armies of demons at his disposal that are seeking to destroy your faith. Now, are you aware of that? Are you on guard against that? Or are you allowing yourself to be shaken in a way that is actually destroying the very thing that holds us to Christ? Here's the second mark of a faltering faith. It is a self-confidence. Verse 33 says, uh, Peter says, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's a pretty bold statement. Are you ready to do that? I mean, if the Police started lining up to arrest Christians, they're just like, I'm sign me up. I'm going to prison. I'm not going to die. That... I'm not going to let my faith die. That's what Peter said. And yet he had no idea that that was not going to be true. That's why Jesus said to him, you know, in 24 hours you're going to deny me three times. That was a shock to Peter. He had a faith in himself. Genuine faith produces a humble confidence that understands how vulnerable I am and how weak my faith really is the further I get from Jesus. I was reminded this week of one of the qualifications for leadership in the church, elders in the church. Uh, one of those qualifications is that this person must not be a novice. He must not be a rookie. 
In other words, there's a seasoning, there's a maturing, a growing of faith. And the more mature you get in faith, the more humble you become at how weak your faith really is. It's kind of a paradox. The stronger your faith becomes, the weaker it feels like it is. Because there's this humility that goes along with understanding that apart from the grace of God, I I am no better off than any unbeliever out there. So that self-confidence is something that we have to be aware of and repent of. Thirdly, an increasing distance from Jesus and His disciples. Uh, Skip over here, skip down. The story continues actually in verse 54. It says this, This is after the arrest of Jesus. It says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following from a distance. Now at this point, every other disciple had disappeared. They had run for their lives. They're in self-protection mode. And yet Peter is the only one that gets close enough to even see Jesus off in the distance. But isn't it a picture sometimes of how we follow Jesus? We follow from a distance. And even in this season where we've been unable to meet together, I would ask you, are you closer to Jesus after these 16 weeks? Or are you feeling the distance? God did not design us for social distancing. Social distancing may be good and necessary for a season for physical health, but it is deadly to our spiritual health. We've got to be gathered together so that we can be encouraged and loved and corrected and rebuked by other followers of Jesus. And so that's why it's so important that we gather together safely, but we've got to meet back together. Understand everyone together who follows Jesus so that we are not divided and we don't form our own opinions without um, having our faith encouraged and challenged by others. Here's another sign is the compromise in seemingly insignificant moments. And this is really the root of the story. In verse 55, it says, When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat together, Peter sat down among them. And so get the picture here. Jesus has been arrested by the mob. He's been carried off to the high priest's house. He's already been beaten. He's already been falsely accused. He's beginning a mock trial, which will result in him being crucified. And Jesus, uh, Peter, is in the courtyard between the high priest's house and uh, the Roman ruler. And in between, in the middle of the night, Peter finds himself there by a fire. Then in verse 56, it says, a servant girl. Now get in your mind a 12-year-old sixth grade girl shows up and begins to have a conversation with Peter. Now, now interestingly here, um, back up in verse 50, we are told just six verses prior to this that when 600 Roman soldiers showed up to arrest Jesus, Peter whips out a sword and starts swinging it and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Six verses later, a sixth grade girl asked Peter this question. Seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, she said, this man 
also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, reminding him of what Jesus had predicted. Now, can you imagine Peter there? Why is he following Jesus from a distance? At least he's in the courtyard, closer than any other disciple. I think it was because Peter really wanted to stand up and, and stand for Jesus. He wanted to activate his faith. And maybe he's there in the courtyard rehearsing the sermon that he's going to preach to the Roman officers and the high priest, and he's getting his points together, and he's making his argument for why Jesus is innocent. And, and while he's doing that, Sixth grade girl walks up and identifies him as a follower of Jesus. Like, don't bother me. Don't bother me. I'm working on my sermon over here trying to, because I'm going to make a big stand here in front of the big, you know, the big moment is what he was living for. The times our faith falters so often is not in the big moments. It's in the dark. It's in the middle of the night. It's in the unsuspecting, seemingly insignificant moments. Like Peter in front of someone he probably considered to be less of a threat. And yet that's exactly what Satan used to expose his faltering faith. I don't know about you, that's when I blow it. It's not in the big moments when I can be seen and people can stand around and look at his, look at his, his strong faith. No, it's in the private moments. And those are the times when we have to be on guard against our faltering faith. The testing of your faith will come in the dark. It will come when you are alone. It will come when you are tired. It will come when you are disappointed. Now, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about the rescue of a faltering faith because Jesus didn't leave him there. Can you imagine if you were Jesus and your friend had denied you three times? Would you move toward him or would you move away from him? Well, we find Jesus moving toward him. As a matter of fact, uh, look here. The first sign of a rescue of this faltering faith is an interceding Savior. And we've already read about it back up in verse 32. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith would not falter. One of the most terrifying verses in the Bible Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat is followed by one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. But I have prayed for you. Satan has demanded to sift me, but Jesus has promised to pray for me. And because Jesus is one with the Father, guess what? Jesus gets all of his prayers answered. So Satan's Sifting is not a threat to Jesus praying. Disciples are powerless against Satan's sifting, but Satan is powerless against Jesus' prayers. 
on the way to the cross. Jesus is not praying for himself. Jesus is praying for his disciples like you and me with faltering faith. You know what that means? I don't have to live in fear of the devil. If the devil has rocked your faith, if he's accused you of being weak, understand Jesus is praying for you. You're not who the devil accuses you of being. You're who Jesus says you are before his father. So outside of faith in Christ, you are the failed sinner that the devil has accused you of being. But if your faith is in Jesus, you are justified. You are declared righteous before the throne of God and you can live knowing you have an intercessor in heaven who steps in between you and Satan and defends you. The strength of our faith is not dependent on our prayers. The strength of our faith is dependent upon the prayers of Jesus. Does that encourage you? Knowing that Jesus gets all of His prayers answered? Another mark of this rescue is an eye-opening alarm. Verse 60 says, The rooster crowed. Now, I grew up in Oklahoma, and um, I remember being close enough early in the morning where I would hear a rooster or two crowing as the sun rose up, and that was an indication of what time of day it was. Peter had been awake all night, Jesus had been awake all night, and the sun was rising, and the rooster crowed. But it was in the exact moment that Peter needed a wake-up call that the sovereignty of God nudged a bird to give Peter what he needed in that moment to wake him up in his faltering faith. Now, I don't know what that rooster crow or that wake-up call may be for you. It could be a parent that has come to you and warned you and encouraged you. You need to wake up and follow Jesus. It may have been a friend or a pastor that has been the rooster crow in your life. It could be something like a coronavirus or a recession or a job loss. Um, all kinds of things that God sovereignly controls to send a message to us to wake up in God's mercy. If you've heard an alarming sound in your life, then take that as the voice of God to come back to Him. Here's another sign of rescue. Uh, the sign of the rescue is a soul-piercing view of the cross. Look at verse 51. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now it's interesting. Peter didn't turn and look at Jesus. I mean, now maybe he did that. It's just not in the language. But what's emphasized in the scripture is Jesus taking the initiative to turn toward Peter. Now, everything within our human brains would have turned away from Peter. But in that moment, in God's grace, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Apparently, they were close enough where they could make eye contact. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And in that moment, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Now, in your mind's eye, picture what Peter saw when he looked at his Savior. He'd already been beaten. He'd already been whipped. He'd already been bloodied. And in that moment, it was the view of the price for Peter's sin that caused him to remember 
the prediction of Jesus. What, what was Jesus communicating without words but with a look? What was Jesus communicating? It's probably something like this. Hey, Peter, uh, told you so. Remember how I predicted that you would falter? And if what I said was true, then everything else I have said is true. What I predicted about you is true. What I predicted about me is true. Remember how I told you I would go to the cross? Remember how three days later I told you I'm going to rise? Then if those things were true, these things are true. And it's in our faltering moments that we remember the words of Jesus and it settles our heart. You can trust Jesus. It's going to be okay. And as a disciple whose faith is faltering, I need to be reminded of the words of Jesus. When you fall, look to Jesus and you'll see Him looking at you. See the face of Jesus that was bloodied for you. See the price of sin. He's dying for you. He's paid the price for you. Here's another sign of that rescue. It's a life-altering sorrow. It closes out here in verse 62, and it just simply says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why was he weeping? He, he wasn't just weeping because of his sin. He was weeping because he saw the mercy of the Savior who had not forsaken him. In his faltering faith, he found Jesus to be faithful to him. And when God breaks our heart of our self-reliance, when God shows us how we've had faith in ourself and He's broken our reliance on ourself, then so often it brings a flood of emotions that activates our will. Just cerebral resolutions to have of stronger faith and try harder and do better, those things are useless until God meets you in the deepest part of yourself, in your heart. And so often that triggers emotions, that triggers tears. When was the last time you shed a tear over your faltering faith? Now, if you're like me, I tend to cry a lot more because of the faltering faith of others. I carry a greater burden for others, and sometimes they seemingly carry for themselves. But God's convicted me this week. Trent, when's, when's the last time you were so heartbroken over your own faltering faith that you responded like Peter? When's the last time you got a view of the cross that triggered something in you that broke your heart? And if there has been a series of weeks, months, years possibly until that has happened for you. This could be the week. This could be the moment where God breaks your heart like He broke Peter's heart there. Now, you can have tears without repentance and you can have repentance without tears. But you cannot have faith without repentance. And so... We're wired different. People can respond differently, but 
there's got to be a point at which faith is activated. Now, this is not the end of the story. This is the end of the text here, and, and you have to continue to read. What, what happened to Peter? Did, did, did he recover from his faltering faith? And the answer is, yes, he did. Now, in this story, we know that three times Peter denied Jesus. If uh, we had time, we could flip over to John chapter 21. It's kind of the end of the story as far as Jesus' last conversation. Uh, Peter had gone back fishing, and Jesus once again meets him on a beach, and three times he asked him the same question, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three different times Peter affirms, Yes, Lord, I love you to offset the three times that he denied him. We find out that Peter is changed after the resurrection. Peter is filled with the Spirit. And Peter is the one who first calls the world to repentance, to believe in Jesus. Not because Peter had a strong faith, but because Peter's story is he had a weak faith and Jesus loved him anyway. That is what transforms a faltering faith into a spirit-filled, courageous faith. Peter went on to write a book in the Bible. Did you know that? Actually, two, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, this is what we read. Peter, speaking to disciples like you and me. He says this. He says, You have been grieved by various trials. It sounds like Peter, right? He'd been grieved to the point of tears. And he says, if you're like me, you've been grieved by various trials, tests, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, listen, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was transformed. Peter probably would say, you know what, I, I don't know that I say that I've got a strong faith, but I've got a tested one, and I've got a genuine faith that has passed the test because I've been sifted, I've been tested. Maybe you're there today and you feel like your world is being violently, rapidly shaken by Satan himself. If you will respond in repentance and faith and trust... God can rescue you in the same way that He rescued Peter. I want to pray for you right now. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Father, thank You that we can come to You through the intercessory prayers of Jesus. Thank You for the example of, of Peter. And so often we feel like him. We don't pass the test pray for some of my friends right now that are being tested and shaken. Even during these 16 weeks, maybe their faith has faltered. I pray that right now in this moment, by your Spirit, you would awaken and strengthen faith. Faith is not just a command, it's a gift. Thank you, Father, that the very thing you demand from us, you gift to us. I pray that right now in humility, those that would boastfully think 
themselves as strong, would humble themselves and cry out to you that you would be the object of our faith. Lord, we look forward to gathering together, closing the distance between one another and closing the distance between ourselves and you. Until that time, meet with us and meet with us as we gather. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.